This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean. I'm your host, Benji Backer, and today I am joined by Ryan Gitt, who has been in this energy, climate, environmental uh, dialogue for a very long time, but has really taken a stance on nuclear, natural gas, solar, wind, all those different topics, and we're going to get into all of it and really discuss what the future of American energy looks like. And I think a lot of it will shock you uh, based on what the narrative currently says. But before we get into that, Brian, welcome to the show. And I really appreciate your leadership and willingness to be here. Well, I'm honored for the invitation. I'm really excited what you're doing in, in building this kind of grassroots, younger generational movement around these topics, because it's just so important uh, to educate people. I mean, my story is a perfect example of I, I lived in ignorance and for 20 years and almost I've, I kind of consider I wasted 20 years of my life focused on the wrong problem. So I think getting these ideas out there, educating people uh, is critical. And I, you're obviously very successful at doing that. So I'm um, very excited to chat today. Well, thank you for saying that. And, and I and I appreciate you saying that specifically because of your background. And I think listeners here would really appreciate to hear that. I mean, I would love for you to introduce your background, your story, and also what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, just going back, I mean, I consider myself, when I think about what do I like to do and what do I do, at the core, I'm an energy entrepreneur, writer, investor, kind of if you were going to put general categories on it. But this really goes all the way back to following my curiosity and my interests. And that's how I got drawn into energy. I was a teenager and I loved the outdoors. I love backpacking, rock climbing. I got super into it. I was a kind of kid that like I would wait for the the next issue of Rock and Ice magazine or climbing magazine to come out, read it cover to cover. And I was just so passionate about it. I'd just spend every waking moment thinking about the next climb I was going to go on, the next trip I was going to do, um, and just really into the outdoors. And I fell in love with wilderness and just being out there. And I wanted to do something to protect these beautiful areas that I got so much joy and um, great experiences from. And so that led me down this path of uh, doing outdoor education. So I used to lead wilderness trips for teenagers in Alaska, in the southwestern U.S., New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado. And some of these trips are pretty intense. For example, in Alaska, we would go for 40 days. We would have 15, 15, and 16-year-olds. And we would. our job was not to be a guide and just say, oh, look at this and do this. It was to teach them to basic survival skills and how to read a map. How do you cook for yourself? How do you navigate? All of these things. And it was so transformational to watch because a lot of the kids were wealthier, to obviously, to go for 40 days in Alaska. Yeah. It, it takes, uh, takes a bit of resources. So a lot of the kids came from New York, LA, kind of wealthier, more affluent urban areas. And it was so cool to see the transformation. I remember this really clearly. There was one 15-year-old girl who came from Manhattan. She had really never even cooked a meal for herself, had a very uh, kind of privileged lifestyle, obviously, growing up in Manhattan. And all of a sudden, she is transported to being 10 days from a road in rural Alaska. We're dealing with grizzly bears and river crossings, and she's having to camp and cook and, and backpack. And it's just such a transformational experience. And to watch her shift and transform in that short period of time in 40 days from someone that was really incompetent, honestly, on so many basic skills and gain that so quickly. And her, her own self-confidence really blossomed and grew through that experience. So it was just really cool. Um, so that's how I got into this, just this love of the outdoors and spending time in nature. And when I would come back into urban settings or into my normal life outside of these trips, I just felt compelled 
to do something to protect these beautiful areas. So that's what drew me into environmentalism. And that's what drew me into interest in energy. The reason I got drawn into energy and to buildings and energy efficiency and all of this kind of stuff is because I didn't, I never was drawn towards kind of the protest movement or save the Amazon. And it just felt so remote, so far away from most people's day-to-day lives. Like most people, you know, they're just trying to get their kids into a good school and they want to get a decent house and they, they don't have time or bandwidth to contemplate the Amazon rainforest. And so I wanted to have a direct impact in a practical way, very pragmatic approach that people could see the direct benefit to them in their lives, as well as the benefits to the environment. And so I always came from that mindset. And then the other kind of idea that I always was really deeply rooted is that I wanted something to be market-based. I didn't want it to be a nonprofit-driven enterprise that was reliant on donations or reliant on the government to come in and to prop these programs up. I generally wanted to find solutions that would align market forces to drive the change because I felt like that was what was going to truly scale the solution. Um, it, it wasn't really coming from an ideological bent, oh, it has to be the market or it can't be the government. It was more about what's going to be successful and what's going to scale this stuff. So that's what sucked me into energy and in, in, in buildings because the more I researched and looked into it, I was like, wow, this is, this is the foundation of modern life. I mean, everything... All the pollution, all the impact on water, everything really gets, if you distill it down to the foundation, Where's it's all coming from our behaviors and consumption related to energy in many ways. I mean, it's a little oversimplistic, obviously, but it, it really is the foundation of everything. So that got me thinking about energy, and I got really excited about solar energy. I remember sitting in this college lecture hall in Northern Arizona, a little town called Prescott College uh, in Prescott, Arizona. And I was listening to Amory Lovins. It's a beautiful place, by the way, Prescott, Arizona. It is. It's really, I love it out there. Um, It's kind of mountainous, a little bit higher elevation. So you're not just in the, it's not what the people imagine is the desert, obviously, but I I love it there. Yeah, that lake and everything. But yes, you're sitting in this class, you were thinking about solar, and then what? Yeah, and so uh, they had a guest lecturer, Amory Lovins, came to speak, who mm-hmm. is very much uh, known and notorious for uh, ha- he's been around for many, many decades um, in the kind of sustainability field and put forth his written books and lectures, and he's very been very prominent in his beliefs around energy efficiency, renewable energy, things of that nature. And I remember him saying this phrase that really stuck with me. He he said, "More energy." from the sun hits the earth's surface in one hour than we consume on the whole planet in a year. And I was like, wow, I was like, that is amazing. I mean, I, cause I had never heard that before. And I was, I was pretty young. I was very impressionable and I wanted to do something with meaning and purpose in my life. And I wanted to make a difference. And here's this guy telling me this amazing resource is available. And all we have to do is learn how to harness it. Oh, here's the solution. It's called solar panels and energy efficiency. So I was hooked. You know, I was sucked into this ideas. It's very romantic idea. And it it still is a very romantic idea. And so um, I just spent every waking moment and hour reading everything I could about solar and energy efficiency, taking every class I could take, um, going and trying to learn how to even install the stuff. I mean, it, I just really went all in and that led me down the road of working in the energy sector, um, on energy efficiency programs, on renewable energy programs for many, many years. And, um, I started actually in construction. And this is a very conscious decision. I wanted to learn how, if I, I thought, I stepped back and thought, okay, if I want to change how we use energy in buildings, I should really learn how we build buildings, how we design buildings. So I went to work for a general contractor because I wanted to learn the nuances of how all the trades work together, electrical, plumbing, framing, finished carpentry. I wanted to experience it myself. And so I went through, I, I viewed it as an apprenticeship. And is kind of my own education on how buildings are made. And so I went to work in general contracting and learned it 
from the bottom up and, you know, did all the dirty jobs and crawled on under buildings and hot attics and trying to really get a visceral sense of how this all happens. And so, yeah, I don't want to ramble on on it, but this is kind of the origin story of how it all right. started and how we, how I got into this field. Um, and then obviously it progressed from there, but I'll, I'll pause <laughs> to see it. Well, actually I would love there. for you to just go, go on into, so you, you had this passion that actually we share a lot of similar kind of background and where the passion comes from. You wanted to do something that was really going to actually work because if it's just led by an NGO or the government, then it's not really that sustainable from a kind of implementation standpoint. So so you're at this point, similar to where I was at, then you're looking at kind of the importance of solar because we do have endless sunlight, which is something that we hear still today all the time. What, What happened? Because I know now, similar to where I'm at, we understand a lot more about the realities of, of, of some of this, where today you're pushing what I believe is the right way forward, which is a huge emphasis on nuclear with also you know other topics we're going to get into, like the importance of natural gas right now, some opportunities around geothermal. Like You're an open book in terms of what types of solutions are out there. But there was some skepticism that you started to have around solar and wind. When and why did that happen? So I worked for about 20 years on energy efficiency and promoting renewable energy in a whole variety of capacities. I was the executive director of a nonprofit for a period of time that worked on green building policies in California. I was the CEO of a consulting firm that focused on uh, various clean technologies, everything from uh, fuel cell vehicles to renewable energy to efficient lighting. We did a whole lot of projects, but really the cracks in my belief system started to become really apparent during the Recovery Act in 2009. So right after we were in this deep recession, the Obama administration had allocated billions of dollars to help people go back to work. We needed you know, to kickstart the economy. And the idea was, well, why don't we put, if we need people to go back to work, why don't we at the same time try to have them weatherize and upgrade buildings and make them more energy efficient and it's various types of energy projects. And so billions of dollars was flushed into the sector. And at the time, I recently had uh, taken on the role of CEO of this energy consulting firm I was recruited into. And it was a relatively small boutique firm. It was at the time, like 15 people or so. And we were really successful in positioning to win a lot of that money. So we're, our company alone, we won $60 million contract to design and implement, which today is known as Energy Upgrade California. Um, this was the very early stages of that. And I thought at that point, the only reason why we couldn't scale these ideas and these programs was we didn't have enough money. We didn't have the right support from government and key stakeholders. But if we did, we'd be successful. Well, we had all that. I mean, we had access to tons of money. We had the California Energy Commission on board, the California Public Utilities Commission on board. We had the utilities on board. We had the contractors engaged in the program. We had tons of new financial instruments and financing programs. We had rebates. We had all of it, soup to nuts. And from my perspective, the program was unsuccessful. Um, And when I saw this, after years of working on this and trying everything that we could think of, to transform the market, to really upgrade what we would hope would be millions of homes, which was just a few thousand homes, really. Uh, it, I had to step back and say, well, what is really working here? This is clearly not working in the way that we intended. So that was the first crack that really started to show that maybe these ideas that I held weren't correct. Because reality was in my face. I couldn't really ignore it. So that was the first time. So and those ideas were that solar and wind were going to be kind of this focal point of the future. I mean, fast forward to now, can you give the listeners kind of an overview of why your stance, I mean, you saw those programs fail in California. That was, you know, a while ago now, over a decade ago. And, and uh, there's been a lot of technological growth and innovation within the solar and wind world, but we're still not seeing it scale at the level that people expected. Solar is still 2% of America's energy uh, production. Wind is between 7 and 8%. What, 
Why have those been so slow to scale? And at what point did you realize we need to look at alternative solutions and maybe rope that into where your nuclear advocacy came in? Well, I think there's some energy myths that underpin kind of the solar and wind industry that have really allowed it to capture billions of dollars worth of funding and subsidies that propped it up. And so the the first myth is that solar and wind are the best way to reduce CO2 emissions, right? If you if you ask the average person on the street and you said, what's the best way? How are we going to reduce CO2? I think most people would likely say, oh, well, we should go solar. We should go wind. Um, well, in fact, we have the data that that is not true, right? We know, looking back since 2005, in the United States, that the greatest contributor to reduction of CO2 emissions has been the transition from coal to natural gas. 61% of all of the CO2 emissions reductions are because of that transition. Now, mm. wind and solar contributed to it. Wind's about 30% of the emissions reduction. Solar's only, I think, 8 or 9%. But it's very clear that the big... Uh, the big thing that moved the needle was the transitioning to natural gas. So no, that's clearly not the best. Like if you're, if you, I think it's important that we zoom out and think what what's the goal? What are we trying to achieve here? We so quickly want to latch on to a particular technology or particular solution, and we lose sight of what we're trying to even do in the first place. I mean, the goal is, I think, most of us would agree, first and foremost, is to protect and improve human welfare and protect and improve the quality of our environment. I think most people, if you got them around the table, they could probably agree on that. So then we have to start with the end in mind and then work backwards. Okay, so what is the most effective path to achieve that goal? And to do that, we have to lay out a whole set of evaluation criteria to fairly weigh the costs and benefits of all these different solutions. Because there is no perfect solution. There's no silver bullet that solves everything in every location on earth, right? You have to, there's a lot of nuance to this. So when we think about those criteria, and I'll apply it directly to your question, which is, okay, energy security is an example of criteria. You know, does leveraging and harnessing this energy source promote and protect our sovereignty as a country? Are we going to be dependent on a foreign, a potentially adversarial country um, for our energy? I mean, that's a basic question. Reliability. Is it available 24-7, 365? Affordability. Can businesses and homeowners afford it? Is it going to allow businesses to make the things that we need, right? Are people going to be able to heat and cool their homes? So these are really critical, but it's also things like versatility and scalability and emissions. There's a whole bunch of criteria, and we don't have time to go through them all right now, obviously, but what we need to do is map out those criteria and then map against those, these various energy technologies. And when you do that, when you when you actually go head-to-head with solar, wind, nuclear, natural gas, coal, you start to see the trade-offs um, between these different evaluation criteria. Um, and it's very evident when you look at something like um, for environmental attributes that solar and wind score very low, right? They are good. Solar and wind are great about not generating emissions at the point of, of generation of energy, right? They, they have no air emissions, no CO2 emissions, but they're horrible in terms of land use. Even in sunny Arizona, uh, a solar panel or a solar farm uses 75 times more land than a small nuclear power reactor, right? In Arizona, it's much worse in New York and even w- more worse in, in Germany. But so even in those best case conditions, you're, you're basically having to destroy a lot more wildlife habitat for putting that solar installation there. Then you look at things like materials use. We don't, the, solar panels don't just don't grow on trees. They're not just falling from the sky. I mean, people like to say, well, the solar energy is free. Well, no, solar panels are made from fossil fuels, toxic chemicals, and all kinds of minerals. How are those minerals mined out, dug out of the earth? Well, we use a ton of diesel fuel to run all the heavy equipment to do that. And then we have to transport all this stuff. We got to process it all. It uses a tremendous amount of energy. Um, and it so from a materials use standpoint, you know, solar uses 18 times more materials than the nuclear power, and um, natural gas is 14 times more efficient than these technologies. So we have to look at materials use, 
land use. Then we look at should look at emissions as well, obviously. Um, but we have to go down that list and and run that that calculus in essence to compare all these things. So I, I think what you just hit on will be brand new information for a lot of listeners. It's something that I <clears throat> wasn't aware of for most of the years of my activism, even as the CEO president of a nonprofit in this space. I mean, I want to get into kind of the future and all that stuff in a second, but in terms of actual energy sources, but in terms of the narrative, I see that that's really where the problem lies because the narrative is so easy to latch onto that, you know, solar and wind are this panacea, that there's really no other option out there that can really compete in terms of efficiency and environmental protection. Where do you think the narrative has gone so wrong and why hasn't it switched yet? Like, why has it taken you? and I, and others so long to come to this realization. And this is what we do for our work every day. This isn't, you know, we're not the average person that has a different job in a different sector of the economy who isn't paying this close of attention. Why do you think that narrative hasn't changed? I think there's confounding reasons for it. I mean, number one, the energy system is very complicated. It's it's not something you can just sit down and and read a 30-minute uh, article about or read even one book about and, and really have a good, thorough understanding of how it all works. It is very complicated. Two, though, I can speak for myself. You know, I was just willfully blind. You know, I was driven by this desire to uh, contribute to something bigger than myself, which is obviously important. Um, and I was deriving meaning and purpose through my work. And because of that, I was not questioning my beliefs and I was, I was, not allowing myself to really take in other viewpoints. And that's really dangerous. I mean, I think if I were to distill down, the most important lesson I learned from those 20 years was question your beliefs. And it's hard because it's uncomfortable. And most of us don't like to do it because we don't like to live in that ambiguity in the middle of not knowing what we think or what we feel or what we our values are, how our identity is, because it became an identity for me. Um, and so that's a danger. And so that was, that was a really important lesson learned. But I think, so th- that's part of it that's driving it. A lot of it's just ignorance, right? It, it just, most people are just unaware because of the complexity of these systems. And then we hold, there's some other myths in addition to the first one that I mentioned earlier. Um, it's not just that solar and wind are not the most effective way to reduce CO2 emissions. I think there's even a deeper underlying assumption that I held. And I think many people hold, I call it the energy damage assumption, which is basically that the amount of energy people consume is proportional to the amount of damage, environmental damage that gets caused. And this is fundamentally false, but I believe this for most of my life, that mm. of course, well, if we use more energy, we're going to create more pollution or create more environmental damage. Well, it's actually just the opposite. And we there's tons of evidence and data to prove this out. We know this in developing countries, that developing countries pollute more than developed wealthy countries. When you look at everything from sanitation systems and uh, air quality, water quality, all of these things, as countries get richer, their environment gets better. And the only way to get richer is to have access to energy and you can economically develop that area. And so I think we hold this incorrect assumption that the more energy you use, the more environmental damage you do, when it's just the reverse. So there's things like this that I think are not conscious for most people. Most people don't spend their days thinking about, oh, what assumption do I hold about energy and the environment? But these are running in the background of our minds. And so as we are reading articles in the media or on social media or wherever, we're getting filtered through these false ideas, through what I would call energy myths or false beliefs are filtering the information that we're digesting. So we have to go to the root and kind of dispel and debunk these core myths that people like myself held for way too long. And I think most people still hold. So that's what I'm trying to do now is, and it's hard, right? Because first of all, how do you take really complex ideas and distill it down to the simplest form? That's a hard thing unto itself. Mm -hmm. Then when someone's identity is tied to a particular set of values and beliefs, it's very hard to get them to re-examine that and shake that. And that's true for many people, especially young people. Uh, I think young people 
are predisposed to this. I certainly was, and I think most of us, we're looking for some sense of purpose and meaning. We're looking to latch on to a way to achieve it, and we're pulling ourselves forward through our identity to follow it. So it's it's complicated answer, obviously, but these are some of the ideas that I think um, relate to the narrative in why it's so difficult to change the narrative. Well, it, it is really difficult, and I think to to really underscore your point about the importance of environmental protection and economic growth, that you can't invest in the environment without investing in the economy as well and having a successful economy. I think to Germany, where uh, Germany's kind of anti, well, pro wind and solar only and anti everything else movement took foot, their leaders were saying, we, our goal is not to lower energy prices. It's actually to get energy demand to be lower. And that mindset backfired when people were using less energy and there was less reliable energy out there. They had to rely on coal and Russian natural gas to produce that energy because they couldn't do it with the solar and wind that you talked through some of the, the negatives through earlier. I see environmental NGOs in Germany and in the United States pushing for the opposite of what you and I would know as the right way forward on energy and climate and the environment. Why, you know, there's tens of billions spent every decade on environmental NGOs in the United States alone. What has failed with the traditional environmental NGO strategy? And is that a big part of that narrative problem? Or do you see that as kind of secondary? Well, I think the root of the problem is we need to give people a way to find purpose and meaning in other ways, give them an alternative vision. Because what is captivating and what draws people into supporting the traditional environmental NGOs is it's, give, it's fulfilling that. It's making them feel good about themselves, that they're contributing to something bigger than themselves, that are part of something. You know, as a society, as we've shifted more and more away from things like organized religion and having close-knit social institutions and clubs and all these things, people are left to figure this out for themselves. How do they contribute in a meaningful way to give themselves a sense of purpose and meaning in their lives? And environmental NGOs have stepped in to fulfill that role. It certainly did for me. It became, because I, I didn't come from a, a strong religious upbringing, I was looking for something. I wanted to grab onto a set of values that would allow it to guide me and give me that sense of purpose and meaning in my life. So I, got, I was drawn to environmentalism for that reason. So they're leveraging that. And they, I think, to some degree, they know this. <laughs> um, nice. Now, they've been... They're very successful at it. And because this is a deep human desire... Um, of course, we want to feel like we're doing the right thing and you know saving the planet, helping people. Um, unfortunately, they're entirely counterproductive measures. They're achieving exactly 180 degrees opposite of what they're what trying they're, to achieve. Yeah. And this is a big problem because they're blocking progress to improving our environment. They're blocking progress to improving human welfare, especially in developing countries. I think there's no bigger hypocrisy on earth than rich developed countries not allowing the developing world to access oil and gas or even coal to help and aid their economic development, to lift them out of poverty, get them to stop burning biomass, which is polluting their bodies and their communities and causing mass death. I mean, we have about 10 million people die every year due to energy poverty um, in just around the world. This is completely avoidable. There's totally unnecessary. And some of our wealthiest countries and financial institutions are not allowing, they're blocking these kinds of projects and the financing of these projects. This is the height of hypocrisy. We mm. get in the developed world over 80% of our energy from fossil fuels. So how in the world can we sit here when we're 100% dependent on them? Because uh, we are 100%, even though 80% of our energy, we are 100% dependent. Because even every solar panel, every wind turbine is made from fossil fuels. All the food we buy is made from fossil fuels. We are 100% dependent on fossil fuels for modern life. So how is it that us in the wealthy, uh, privileged world allow ourselves to deny this in the developing world? To me, that's completely immoral. 
Uh, it's wrong on every possible level. And environmental NGOs, to your point, are leading the charge on this. They think they're doing the right thing. I don't think they think they're acting immorally. Clearly, they're not. Right. I, I don't but, think so either. But we have to educate them and show them and persuade them that they are creating more harm than good. I completely agree. I mean, I can just say it any better myself. And, I, and as somebody who knows the leaders of a lot of these organizations, they do mean well. They do mean well. I think what the conservative approach or maybe just the anti-environmental NGO approach has been is like they have some evil agenda to take over society. No, no they actually don't know usually what they're doing is wrong because a lot of the times, I mean, especially politicians and environmental NGO you know, leaders, they might not even have the same access to the information that you and I have because they haven't searched for it. And it's not, I mean, that's, that's their fault, but it's not like they're driving some massive agenda to, to, to overtake society. But you're right, it, ha it has the 180 degree impact where an environmental NGO is, po is posing as an environmental organization, but really has proposed and produced policies that make things worse on the environment. And I think you, you, you can't look any further than, than California, where emissions are either going up or stagnating because they've had bad forest management policy where they've said we don't want to manage our forests and they're burning every year where they're mandating solar and wind and you know closing down nuclear and natural gas and now they're importing fossil fuels from all over the world um, and all over the united states and so the people who created those policies i don't think had the intention of we actually want to make it california's environment worse and we want to raise energy prices on everybody it was just truly a lot of ignorance and you alluded to something that i think i mean so this this past week we had blackrock's uh head of portfolio management on to talk about their esg strategy and i want to talk to you briefly about that because you just alluded to you know companies also trying to push for this sort of thing first of all i personally was surprised by the all the above focus that the blackrock you know leader rich uh Cushel had I thought that that was actually really eye-opening to hear. Outside of maybe that striking kind of conversation around the importance of natural gas and nuclear and, and not just having wind and solar only, what were your reactions to that interview? Because I know you had a chance to listen to it. ESG has been such a polarizing topic. What do you think about that conversation? What did you think about that, that interview? So BlackRock, first off, uh, is an amazingly successful company because they've contributed value to people's lives. So you don't get to a, a $9 billion, or I'm sorry, uh, whatever their valuation, I think it's trillion. Trillion, yeah, sorry, trillion dollar. You don't get to a, you manage $9 trillion in assets if you're not creating value for people. So the, what they've built is incredible. Um, and it has obviously benefited many, many people's lives because they're helping people manage their money, et cetera. And so I think if I were sitting down with him, we would probably agree on most things, you know, generally the role of government, um, how do you create value in society? We would, we would agree on a lot. Right. And yep. I, I, I want to give them props and credit for what they've achieved because it is huge. I mean, anyone that can create that kind of a valuable enterprise uh, should get major kudos and um, it should be praised for that. I, I think the challenge with BlackRock is what, what I heard in the interview was they felt like they were being attacked from all sides and somewhat unfairly, um, where I don't think that they are being fully honest. And what I mean by this is BlackRock is in the business to make money, right? And that's perfectly... I think yep. uh, should be the goal of a business is to make money. Sure. Uh, yep. And you have to examine the incentives overall. They want to give choice to their customers, which I think they should. Uh, if their customers want to invest in a sustainability-oriented investment fund, they should offer that. And I think that's a great option to provide. I think the problem is, is that they're actively promoting products that I believe are fraudulent. Like, I don't think they're consciously designing fraudulent products, by the way, um, but I think that's what's happening. And so what I mean by that is, so they, they have to take some ownership or responsibility in it. You know, Larry Fink has been incredibly vocal. He didn't have to do this. He's written multiple 
shareholder letters to the top CEOs in the world, right? I mean, he has incredible influence in weight on these topics because of they manage $9 trillion. They're a market maker, not a market taker, right? So, you know, what he says does carry a lot of weight. And he's come out incredibly vocally and strongly, especially in past years. He's tempered it more recently about the need to divest from coal, the need to divest from fossil fuels in general, um, that we have to go to net zero. And he's pumping this message out and telling all of these companies, if you don't do this, we're not going to invest in you. Now, in, in reality, they are invested in a lot of these companies, obviously, but you can't ignore the hypocrisy. I'll give you an example. So let's take coal. They say, BlackRock says, we are divesting from coal in the United States. We're getting rid of it. We're not going to, we need to do this to achieve CO2 reduction goals. But they don't say that in China. They're huge investors in one of the major Chinese coal companies. Um, they're not divesting from that. Um, so why would you talk about divesting in the U.S., but not investing in China? If anything, if you're truly focused on net CO2 reductions, it would be much more impactful to reduce CO2 in China because their coal-burning facilities emit a lot more than the U.S. We have much more sophisticated pollution control technology and other ways. We've reduced our emissions, air pollution, by 90% in the U.S. on our coal plants by using more efficient technology and, and regulation and controls. They don't have that in China. So I think that's an example of the hypocrisy that a BlackRock has on this topic, where you can't, on one side of your mouth, say, we're going to hit net zero, we're going to cut CO2 emissions, we're going to divest from coal in the U.S., but we're not going to do it in China, right? So I think... This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. They have to take some ownership and responsibility in this narrative. I think they have actually driven some of the polarization. I know that they're viewing themselves a little bit in the victim in the middle. They're getting attacked from both sides, and they are getting attacked from both sides. But they can't. They haven't been a passive observer. They've been an active participant and very much, very vocal, very much leading the charge on this whole net zero agenda. And so I don't. Th I think it's a little disingenuous to say that oh, we're just getting attacked and we're just trying to be in the middle and, and not um, creating the problem. I think they have contributed. So that would be uh, my feedback. Again, I, I highly respect BlackRock. I wonder if that reaction is where they want to be now. And in the middle, right? They want to be more pragmatic. I, and obviously the proof will be in the pudding. But to your point, I remember back in 2018 or 2019 when Larry Fink issued his first letter around that, maybe it was even 2017, uh, around the importance of divesting from fossil fuels, how big of a deal that was. Like, it was a huge deal. And it was on the front page of every news publication in this country. It, even if the listeners didn't see that, it was a big deal. And they have been driving that narrative from the forefront for a while. And to your point, they've been saying less of that recently. And I, I wonder... And obviously, it's a big deal because they 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 manage nine trillion dollars of assets around the world. But I wonder if they had the same mentality as you and I and others, where they had this false you know reality in their heads that they could just help be the reason that that the world transitions to solar solar and wind overnight. Now they're starting to see how difficult some of these decisions are, and then of course they have an economic incentive to to make the right decisions um and they're trying to take more of a nuanced approach do you think that they could be trying to reposition themselves into this more kind of common sense approach with it that we heard i mean they talked about how fossil fuels aren't going to go away they talked about how nuclear is important they talked about how the transition is going to take longer than even the they've said so i'm wondering if they're trying to reposition or do you think that it's uh it's different than that well, I definitely agree that they're trying to reposition, and I, and I always give people the benefit of the doubt generally. And you know, we we all have the 
right to be wrong and to change. And we shouldn't vilify people if they're trying to change. So I, I appreciate that. I would say there's kind of, and I don't know, I, I can't be in someone's head. So I, I have no authority to say exactly what someone else, another human being is thinking. I think there's two, a uh, couple different scenarios there. One is the scenario you're saying that they're in the, with the best of intentions, but maybe just a degree of ignorance um, have kind of pushed too far. And now they're correcting some of their errors and trying to find the middle point. That's certainly a plausible scenario. I think another scenario, though, is if you follow the incentives all the way back, like what is the incentive for them to to expose this view originally in that 2019, 2020? And I think there, there were some big economic incentives that were driving this. I think they saw an opportunity to, in essence, create a bunch of new products, these new investment vehicles, to target very specific consumers that have genuine interest in, in these areas that they can make additional fees on. Most of those funds that are sustainability or ESG related have actually slightly higher fees because there's more research required. They have to do all the research they normally do on a company, but now they have to layer on all this new research for all of these other categories of things. So of course it's going to cost more and they have to pass that cost on. And so they're making more fees on it. So I think they saw, I think, a political wave changing the discourse as well. And it seemed like, hey, we can we can potentially be in line with this trend, this wave towards clean energy and, and kind of divesting from fossil fuels. We can look really good to all of the government officials and to all the folks. We can attract new customers and make additional fees on it. So in the reality is probably the truth is like most things, probably in between. <laughs> you know, it's not black and white. I'm I'm not trying to say this was their strategic plan, nefarious plan from the beginning. I don't know. I'm not in their head. Um, I'm just pointing out there's there's a few different plausible scenarios, and the truth probably lies somewhere muddled in the middle. Well, I actually think that you're exactly right, that it is probably both. And I, I it's hard to blame them, honestly, as somebody who has disagreed with a lot of what they've said and, and done to to create some of this adverse reaction that I also think has been an overreaction from the other side uh, uh, to BlackRock. They've largely created this problem for themselves at the beginning, but I also can't blame them for wanting to approach those incentives and for believing maybe ignorantly that some, just like all of us, I think, have, um, that it was a little bit simpler than it actually is. And, you know, the way that I see ESG, and I, I want to get your thoughts on this, ESG has become such a lightning rod for conservatives to go after. And I would rather work with a BlackRock on understanding the complexities and also trying to steer them in the right direction and also just be a partner uh, in, in trying to fight for a cleaner future that's economically sound than block any work with them and basically take them as the enemy. And that's the problem I have with the Republican, conservative, libertarian, anti-ESG response is that it is basically like these guys are evil they have an agenda they're trying to shove it down our throats therefore and that's what we assume therefore we are going to ban their investment in our states therefore we are going to make them out to be this like globalist institution that wants to take over your lives and we're going to fear monger into making you feel like you should be scared as an individual of blackrock i think that approach has been really toxic even though there have been just as toxic things coming out of the ESG space that understandably have made people scared. So I, before we get into kind of, you know, what you see the future of this being in terms of energy, what do you see the future of ESG being? And, and what do you think of, of what the reaction has been of such a lightning rod topic? I think the, the root of the problem is that the existing ESG criteria are so fundamentally flawed, they're achieving oftentimes 180 degrees opposite, just like the environmental NGOs mm. we talked about of their intent. That's the core root of the problem. I Again, I, I can't speak to motivations. And I generally agree with you that we should be looking, how can we partner and work with firms and organizations to help steer and guide them in the right direction versus villainizing them? I don't think villainizing anyone is useful. Um, I guess the counter argument to that is sometimes you need a shock to the system to course correct, mm. to show them the face of, you know, the, the their ways of, uh, of error and so that they can course correct. Otherwise, they wouldn't, right? So I could see 
the different perspectives, but my general approach in philosophy is to work collaboratively wherever possible and not to villainize, because I don't think that's generally useful. Um, but back to the, the root cause, right? The root cause is, first of all, there's no common definition of what ESG is. It's this big amorphous soup with everyone defining it in a different way. So the question is, what is it? What is the standard that will be applied? Who decides? Who decides what is the standard and what is in and what is out? Right? These are fundamental questions. And right now, you have hundreds, if not thousands, of different actors all defining it in their own way, all deciding what scores should be and what's in and what's out. And they're creating just tremendous amount of noise in chaos in the space. And so it's not surprising that no one really knows what this is. You have you have uh, ESG funds, thousands of them, that were completely devalued overnight because an organization changed their criteria, right? And they didn't do it. The companies didn't do anything different. It's not like they the company all of a sudden had a different operating plan right. or cut emissions or anything. So clearly, most of this is very arbitrary. Yes. And they're not using kind of sound methodology and standards. Now, this the again, the root of this is that many people believe these false beliefs are energy myths that aren't true. If you really, if the goal is reduction of air pollution, right? We we should focus on what is going to be most effective. It's not necessarily solar, right? It could be, maybe in some cases, solar and wind is the appropriate technology. But why are they cutting out nuclear power when we know? Nuclear power, for example, is the most effective way to reduce CO2 emissions and reduce air pollution. Nuclear has four times less CO2 emissions than solar on an equivalent unit of energy generated. And that's mm. being generous. That's assuming that the current assumptions that are driving the life cycle emissions, which are fundamentally flawed, but I'm, giving, I'm being charitable going about what is published today. Um, we know that most of the panels, for example, are made in China, and we know that all that energy is derived from coal, and they have weak environmental re regulations, and it's not accounted for, when a lot of the standards are pointing to life cycle emission studies that don't use China as the baseline. So I'm being incredibly charitable by saying nuclear is four times less emitting than solar, when it can be up to 25 times less depending on where the solar panels are made. So why in the world would we be vilifying nuclear power when clearly it's the optimal solution? If you care about CO2 reduction, right. you care about air quality. So right. these systems are flawed. Fundamentally, they're flawed products. I consider many of them absolutely fraudulent products that are being marketed. And this is where I think BlackRock does have some responsibility because they are promoting these products, right? If, if a company makes something that is not living up to the promise to a customer. The customer thinks, I'm buying this healthy snack. And in fact, the snack isn't healthy. Then there is a degree of responsibility for the, res the person that is promoting that product. And the same thing comes with environmental sustainability. If you are promoting something that you're saying is environmentally sustainable, it's going to reduce air pollution, it's going to help people in all of these ways, and it's doing the opposite, you have some responsibility in that situation. So that's all I'm saying in, in mm -hmm. terms of, yes, let's work with them. Let's evolve. We're all, I've been more guilty than BlackRock in my past. I, I, so I've made this mistake. I'm not trying to vilify anyone. Um, but I think the first step is acknowledging that maybe the errors were made so that we can start to dig deeper and find a better solution. So you're equating it to like uh, the Quaker Oats bars that uh, they said were healthy, those multi-grain multi bars, those chocolate chips <laughs> and s'mores and that we ate uh, that were oh, yeah. as healthy that aren't actually healthy. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is, I don't know if you remember this, but there was this whole sugar-free wave and Intamins oh, and all yeah. these snacks that were supposedly going to healthy for you. And it turned out they're terrible for you. They're all processed crap. And we we thought we were feeling so good about ourselves. We're eating sugar-free this and zero fat that. Um, and it's just, yeah, I feel it in a similar way. Unfortunately, the goals of ESG are noble and I support the goals. We should care about environmental sustainability. We should care about improving social justice. We should care about these issues. They're important issues, but we're not doing it in the correct manner in terms of how we're approaching it. So we need to fix this. Um, and if we're just going to sugarcoat this and paint over it and pretend that it's not a problem, we're never going to fix it. 
Wow, that I mean that that was a really powerful statement, I think, right there, which is that, you know, and, and I think will be really respected by a lot of people who either have bought into ESG or have not bought into ESG. That's a very, very balanced approach that I think honestly is really the only path forward. I really appreciate you saying that. And then knowing that we're I mean, I could talk to you about this stuff for literally hours, days, months, years, probably. <laughs> and you have so much knowledge to share. And I'm going to make sure that at the end, we shout out your social media channel channels so people can follow you. You have been so focused on exposing a lot of these realities on social media. We've talked about the importance of doing that to changing the narrative. One of the things that you've also been super involved in kind of as the last topic for us today is on the nuclear front, the small module reactors that we've talked about on this show before, but not at depth. We obviously can't talk about it at true depth today, but can you share with listeners what the future of nuclear looks like, what small modular reactors are, where they are right now, and what you're doing about it uh, as it pertains to, to how we see the future of this issue? Small modular nuclear is the future of energy. I think I'm so excited about this. I'm dedicating my full time to it, right? I'm, I'm working for a company that's out promoting it. And sometimes people will accuse me of, oh, well, you're just shilling what you do. I was like, no, you got it in reverse. I decided what was going to be most impactful <laughs> and it's the solution. And then I got the job, right? So it's, it's important to understand the order of operations here. But right. The reason why I was drawn to it and the reason why I believe in it so much, and it's not its not a silver bullet. It's not a panacea. We need natural gas. We need coal in certain countries, right? I, as I said before, it's not a single solution. But when we look at across all those categories from materials use and land use and emissions, um, all of these various things, it wins in every single category. Um, I'll give you an example. A small modular reactor, especially the micro reactors, they can sit on a teeny footprint of land. So you can, they can be on a small area of land as two acres. They don't use, many of the designs don't use any water for, for cooling the reactor. So the only water they use is just the makeup water for the steam turbine. Um, so that means you can site them almost anywhere. You don't, you're not constrained to be near a reservoir, uh, being near a lake or be in the ocean or river, anything like that. So that means you can put them anywhere. Well, right now, there's a huge surge in this trend of electrification. We're trying to electrify everything, supposedly. We have data centers that are doubling their capacity of power consumption. Between 2022 and 2030, we will be doubling the amount of energy consumption in data centers alone. And that's not even accounting for this new trend of AI. That's just kind of the trajectory we were already wow. doing with the transition from analog to digital services and all of these things. Now, when you factor AI on that, imagine the rocket ship that's going to happen in those emissions. We right. can Google, Microsoft, Amazon can't even build new data centers in Virginia right now because there's transmission bottlenecks and getting it in there. Mm -hmm. Well, small modular reactors can solve this problem. You can put a small modular reactor right on side of the data center, right on side of the factory, right on side of an industrial site. You don't need any access to excessive water, as I mentioned. You sit on a teeny little footprint so you're not destroying natural habitat and wildlife uh, in the process. You have zero emissions at the point of generating the power. The fuel can be recycled. A big pre misconception about nuclear energy is the two things that people say when you hear the word nuclear. They think meltdown and safety risks like Chernobyl or Fukushima, and they think, what do we do with the waste? Well, both of those are non-issues with small modular reactors of most, most of these advanced technologies. They're called walk-away safe, which means that a meltdown event similar to a Chernobyl or Fukushima is impossible. And when I say impossible, I mean the physics of it are impossible in the way that they're designed. That's just not a, even a, a possible scenario for, them to, for that to happen in, wow. in, these, in these modern designs. So that's off the table. That's not, there's, there's basically no radiological event that would, in the worst case scenario, and we have to look at everything. We have to look at what if a terrorist drives a truck bomb? What if a plane flies into it? What if like a missile strikes it? I mean, we have to look at all of this stuff. There is no scenario where you're going to have any contamination to the surrounding community from a radiation perspective mm -hmm. of this. So that's one. Um, two, on the waste, we can recycle nuclear waste. 95% of the energy... That when a waste comes out of these large light water reactors, which we have 92 of them throughout the country that supply about 20% of our electricity in the U.S. today, that waste is not really waste. It's just 
It's a resource and we need to mine that resource. We have about 90,000 tons. It could all fit on a single football field stacked 10 yards high. It's a teeny amount of waste when you really think about something that's provided the United States 20% of our energy for 70 years could fit on a single football field 10 yards high. That's almost nothing. But that's not, it's not even a problem today, but we could recycle it because 95% of the energy is still in it and use that recycled fuel to power new, modern, small, advanced reactors. And that's what we're doing at our company. We're, we're building a recycling facility to recycle this waste. We're going to process that waste from the large whitewater reactors, as well as the waste that comes out of our reactors on the other end. We can recycle it again. So the waste issue is solved. That's no longer a concern. This, the safety issue is solved. That's not a concern at all. Um, you can put them anywhere. They use very little to no water. They emit no air emissions. What's not to like about this? Why aren't we going? We should be, instead of wasting billions of dollars, trillions of dollars on inefficient, lower-grade technologies like wind and solar, why aren't we investing that money on a solution that solves a lot of these problems and put these things right at the factory, right at the data center, right at the military base, right at all of the point source. You don't have to build all of that transmission infrastructure. With wind and solar, we're going to have to triple the size of the transmission grid. Imagine that. We can't build anything today and all of a sudden we're going to triple the size of the grid. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All we're going to have happen is we're going to destroy more wildlife. We're going to use excess materials and resources, create more mining, and have a very inefficient use of energy. And that's the exact antithesis of what we're trying to do. We're trying to protect the environment. We're trying to help people's lives. We're trying to develop the economy. And that's not the solution. So we know what the solution is. We have it right in front of us. And again, it's not just that. We, we need natural gas. We need coal for certain applications. We need hydro. I'm a big fan of geothermal. I'm not, I'm not a single uh, solution person, but we have to be honest about the, the trade-offs and weigh these costs and benefits. And to me, there's no better solution that has more promise than small modular nuclear reactors. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think what it comes down to is that with especially onshore wind and uh, solar, you, at this point, it's very unknown what the potential is. But right now, the current potential is pretty limited. Um, at least can, it's confined to a lot of constraints. And it's unknown what potential it could have in the future because the technology just isn't there yet. With nuclear, you know exactly what you're getting. You know the scale, the reliability is there. You know that it's the technology is there. And yes, small modular reactors are just coming online now. The technology is evolving very quickly. But in terms of the, the scale of this technology, it's the only way forward that can do what we need to do to protect our environment with the limited uh, timeline that scientists talk about all the time. If you're going to use that timeline, this is the, this is the best way forward because you know what you're getting. And it's not hoping for some magical wand to come and fix the, the inefficiency issues and cost issues and, and other environmental issues of wind and solar. I also believe wind and solar are going to be a part of that mix. But to pretend that it's not going to be nuclear that's going to be the biggest chunk of low to no carbon energy, I think, is ignoring the reality. And that's why I appreciate what you're doing with Oklo and what the whole industry is doing right now. We're starting to see a shift towards sensible solutions, towards nuclear, towards natural gas towards battery storage towards a ton of things that like are really the only ways forward that have been completely ignored for so many years. And I really, really value your leadership in this space. And, um, you know, I hate to cut the conversation off, but we, we do have to do that. But for now, maybe any final thoughts that you have, and please also share your social media and where people can find you because I'm sure people are going to be interested in, in following you from here on out. Hope is not a strategy, and we can't count on technologies that don't exist to solve the problems. For example, we don't have long-term battery storage, and that is claimed to be the solution for intermittent solar and wind. So we need to focus. We need to be smart. We need to be practical and pragmatic, and we need to leverage technologies that already exist that can solve these problems. Uh, we know how to do it. It's like any problem. You can't throw everything in the kitchen sink and have all of these options available and to solve a problem. This doesn't work in any industry for any, for any challenge. You have to be focused. You have to be strategic. You have to be smart and practical to solve problems. And saying all of the above 
is not the answer. And I'm hearing this over and over. Oh, we need all of the above. We need all the energy sources. No, we don't. We don't. You don't take that approach in anything else. You don't. If you're going into surgery, you're saying, "Well, just operate on everything that's wrong with me." No, you 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 figure out the most effective thing that solved the problem. You do it right. And this all of the above approach is a massive opportunity cost that's wasting tremendous time and resources on much more effective solutions. So, if people are interested in following me or just learning more about this, I do try to share everything I'm learning on Twitter at Brian Git. I have a website BrianGit.com that I write. Articles. I'm about to publish a, a book soon on this topic, on my own journey and story. Um, so if people are interested in that, they can just subscribe to my email list on, on brianget.com and I'll let them know when it's coming out. Anyways, I really appreciate the work you're doing and it's so important. And I love that you're motivating so many young people around these issues because uh, it's, it's essential and it's the path forward. So thank you, Benji. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, evangelizing these ideas is, is critical to the future, and I've got so much more that I want to talk to you about, so we'll have to bring you back, and I know our listeners are appreciative of it, and I too, so thank you for your time, thank you for your leadership, and uh, excited to see this kind of transformation and evangelism of smart ideas uh, continue, and, and you and I and so many others are, are just getting started in this space, and we've got a long ways to go, and I uh, just truly appreciate your time again. Thank you. Appreciate it. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.